I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. This is a special crossover episode between The Truth of the Matter and my other podcast, The Coronavirus Crisis Update, that I do with Steve Morrison, my colleague here at CSIS. On this podcast, we talked with Larry Gostin, who's a university professor and director of the O'Neill Center at Georgetown University, and he works on a lot of issues surrounding the law and public health. What we talked to Larry about was the recent ruling on the mask mandate being knocked down by a federal judge in Central Florida. I hope you enjoy this conversation. It's a really interesting one about a super interesting issue. Andrew and I are delighted to again have join us today on our podcast, Larry Gostin. Larry is the university professor at Georgetown, where he directs the O'Neill Institute for National and Global Health Law. He's also the director of the World Health Organization Collaborating Center on National and Global Health Law. Larry, welcome and thanks for making time with us today and congratulations on your very powerful op-ed published today in the New York Times, April 26th. No matter how you feel about masks, you should be alarmed by this judge's decision. <laughs> yep, that's that's right. And it's uh, great to be back with you, Steve and Andrew. It's always a joy. So we're going to talk about this decision by the federal judge, Catherine Kimball Mizell. That was on April 18th, a little over a week ago. A very long 59-page opinion that threw out the emergency mask mandate for mass transit and international travel that President Biden had issued on the first day as an executive order, first day of office. That law gives federal officials the authority to make and enforce regulations to prevent the spread of communicable diseases. We'll talk about the law. It dates back to 1944, the U.S. Public Health Service Act. There's a certain irony in the timing of this decision. You know, it's coming as we close in on one million deaths, American lives lost to COVID-19. CDC, it was likely to have suspended that mandate order on May 3rd. So it's also ironic in that place. But it's it's reminded us in a really powerful way that the intrusion of the courts into these matters of pandemic preparedness and response and the way in which that can be very disruptive and force us to really sort of reconsider. And in the terminology you've used yourself, Larry, this is the, a new chapter in an ongoing COVID culture war. And it relates back to an earlier Supreme Court decision on, on OSHA and the vaccine mandates of large businesses. It relates back to the Supreme Court ending the CDC capacity to ban evictions. So it's it's coming in that context and it's coming in a period when there's a lot of lack of trust and compliance and like. So let's start with, let's talk about the decision itself. Give us a quick synopsis on the legal logic of the ruling, the style of language, and this specific focus that the judge made on the term sanitation. This is very important. And the degree to which this was masked in freedom language, in casting mask mandates as a form of forced removal, which is something I hadn't really thought of. Yeah, I mean, there's so much, there is so much to unpack there, Steve. I mean, I'm not sure I could actually describe the logic of this decision because I think it really, you know, lacks legal coherence. 
But essentially, what Judge Mizell was saying is, is that she zeroed in on the word sanitation, which is one of the words, one of the many words in the Public Health Service Act. And she said, well, masks aren't sanitation. You know, sanitation is when you clean the plane. It's not when you force somebody to do something. So I, I pause there and note just something that hasn't been noted a lot is, is that her conception of public health is, is that you can do what you want to require somebody to clean up a room or a pest, but you can't make anybody do something that they don't want to do. So it's really is, you know, it's that kind of subtlety. Never mind that, as we all know, sanitation is useless, totally useless against SARS-CoV-2. And that the CDC had it only literally used sanitize, wouldn't have had any impact on the transmission of disease. Beyond that, the decision was laced with, as you say, you know, or and as I've said, COVID culture war ideas. At one point, she says, you know, you can't just yank people out of their seats because they're unmasked or remove them from a bus stop because they're unmasked. And that's kind of a very freedom oriented. And she went on to say that it's not as if CDC has the power to detain or quarantine. And of course, those in, of us in public health really have to kind of have our jaw drop when that says, because the actual regulations that the CDC is operating under are called the quarantine regulations. And CDC has used those regulations to detain in smallpox, multidrug-resistant tuberculosis, Ebola, and now COVID-19. So it was wrong on many uh, ideas. So, Larry, it is fair to say that the judge was really calling into question the most fundamental core capacity or authority of CDC as laid down in the U.S. Public Service Act of 1944. I mean, this if this stands, the CDC is stripped of authority. The way I've put it is very similar to what you just said, Steve, is that, you know, if CDC doesn't have the power to require somebody that's getting on a flight from New York to Los Angeles to do something very unintrusive, which is to wear a mask, I don't know what CDC could do. If it can't do that, what could CDC do? And I was going on to say that, you know, just to give our listeners a little public health history, in 1944, when the, when the Public Health Service Act was enacted, there was still living memory of the great influenza pandemic. Infectious diseases were a scourge on the nation, including tuberculosis. But also, the word sanitation at that time, and that's what was important because we're trying to ascertain what Congress intended, was not one of, you know, a sterilizing uh, a surface. Sanitation was public hygiene, public health. It's been known since that, since the colonial era. And it's only now that this kind of narrow and constrained view of that word and also of CDC's powers that 
really could just handcuff um, the nation's premier public health agency. Yeah. I mean, sanitation, I don't, we don't want to go into this too much longer, but sanitation as a term is a 19th century term, right? That was used in the early earliest treaties in trying to figure out how to control transmission as maritime traffic was expanding and and you were having the facing the consequences of what are the rules of the road when you show up at a port and how do you verify that you're not going to be importing something? Sanitation commissions were what predated PAHO and ultimately the World Health Organization. Absolutely. And what you're referring to, of course, is the International Sanitary Convention, which WHO adopted as its first act in 1948. And that subsequently led to the international health regulations, which are not only about sanitation, they're about screening, testing, public health measures of all kind. So you're right. This is, this is not a good reading of history. Larry, so great to be with you again, as always. You know, it occurs to me that whether you're for mask mandates or against them, if this decision stands, it really rejects the longstanding consensus of how government works, doesn't it? Beyond the CDC. Way beyond the CDC. And this is a project that uh, the conservative judiciary and, and now the Supreme Court has had, which is kind of dismantle the regulatory state or the administrative state. Now, I know a lot of listeners will say, well, why do we need an administrative state? But it's not the bureaucracy we're protecting. We're protecting the ability of our institutions to help us and protect us for occupational health and safety, consumer protection, chemical hazards, climate change, in other words, it's preventing government from solving hard problems that threaten the American public. I've often said about this case, and it's going up to the 11th Circuit and then probably to the Supreme Court, be careful what you wish for, because one day there will be a really serious public health threat, and we will look to our premier agency, the CDC and other federal agencies to protect us and to save our lives. And if at that moment, CDC has its hands tied behind its back, I don't think anybody, Republican, Democrat, liberal, conservative, would be and should be happy about it. Yeah, so this decision, if it stands through the next appeal and then ultimately the Supreme Court, it prevents government at the federal level from solving any kind of problem and really doing its job. It really does, you know, and this might, you know, go south in the 11th Circuit because the majority of the just judges in the 11th Circuit are Trump appointees. Yeah, I think it's six out of 11, right? Yeah, as is Judge Mazel, uh, who was appointed by President Trump after he lost the election and on a strict party line vote when the American Bar Association rated her unqualified. So we have to go back deep into our founding principles to, to really think through the role of the judiciary. And I can't think of a worse way. Steve mentioned 
that uh, CDC was going to lift the mandate anyway, and it was. I've talked to the White House about this. But I can't think of a worse way to end the, you know, the COVID era transit masks that we've all gotten used to than a single federal judge in the central part of Florida issuing a nationwide ban. Right. So that's that. essentially what we're talking about here is a judge unilaterally deciding policy for the entire country. Listeners should ask themselves, you know, you know, you may agree or not agree with the CDC, but who would you rather be making really deeply consequential public health decisions? You know, the virologist, epidemiologist and other scientists at the Centers for Disease Control or Prevention or a 34 year old judge in Florida. The administration was in a lose-lose situation last week. Whether to appeal or whether not to, they chose, okay, we've got to go for this. And so they've they've filed appeal. They're not going to reimpose them. They didn't ask for a stay. They're not going to reimpose the mandate. That would have been very unpopular. That was very clever that they came up with this combined strategy. And just say what you think the prospects are. I mean, the this should be fundamentally a common sense, consensus, bipartisan sort of issue when properly vetted and properly thought out. Do you think that's possible as it goes through the circuit court, the 11th Circuit Court of Appeal? I mean, it's hard to say that. I mean, I mean, if we had a functioning government, Steve and Andrew, the, you know, Congress would step in and say, yes, we, we did intend for CDC to have, you know, strong powers. But that's not likely to happen. I'm on a National Academy of Sciences committee reporting on this very issue, not just masks, all of CDC powers for preventing interstate or international transmission of disease. That's going to come out in June, you know, and, you know, while you would like Congress to modernize the Public Health Service Act, it's hard to see that happening. And on the 11th Circuit, Anything could happen. I mean, the case to me from a legal point of view seems very clear. The Public Health Service Act says this. The Public Health Service shall have the power to prevent the introduction and transmission of an infectious disease across the United States, interstate, as it deems necessary. Then it lists a number of things CDC can do, including sanitation, but not limited to it. And then ends by saying, or any other measure that CDC deems necessary. Seems like any court reading that would say, yeah, we're in a pandemic. um, And this is what CDC deems necessary. And it's got evidence behind it. But whether that will happen in the 11th Circuit, I'm not sure. At the Supreme Court, I kind of hope and think that the court will uphold the mask mandate. But my worry is in so doing, in order to get, uh, you know, Justice Roberts, you know, vote, maybe Kavanaugh, I'm not sure, uh, that it will so curtail the Public Health Service Act as to still have CDC hesitant, looking over its shoulder and refusing to act in a a nimble and decisive manner when the next health crisis hits. So we're full of a great deal of legal, political, and public health risk here. Well, speaking of the political, Larry, you mentioned 
earlier that the judge and some of her allies have made this a freedom issue. In your view, does this decision further politicize masks? And you know, have we entered a new era in which we have to factor in the courts more systematically into health planning and policy and strategy and politics? It is absolutely part and parcel of the eroding trust in public health agencies and CDC in particular, because it plants a seed in the minds of many people in the public, which basically says, well, CDC is acting illegally anyway. This is not a well-known fact, but literally everything the Biden administration has tried to do on COVID-19, Steve mentioned some of them in, in his introduction, literally every measure has been at one time or another blocked by the courts. That's stunning. May I turn a little bit to CDC itself? I mean, the before this happened, CDC was in a weakened position. You know, it went through a terrible time in the Trump administration. It's continued to, to, to stumble in various ways. And public opinion of it, public respect and trust has remained low and quite problematic. And there's been a lot of discussion around the need to reform and renew the CDC. This doesn't help, right? This singles it out to say, you know, it's suspect. It's part of this broader broader campaign to weaken the administrative state, create confusion and chaos, erode trust, stigmatize the institution. It kind of brings us back to remind us that there needs to be a concentrated effort to protect and revitalize CDC. Congress needs to step forward with others, it seems to me, in this effort. I mean, this is another blow to a a key institution that's really gone through a pretty bad period. I wanted to get your thoughts. Yeah, and I think, you know, as far as, you know, you and I have both said, Steve, and, and many of our colleagues have, CDC is not entirely blameless, and CDC has not performed quite in the way we would have liked to them to, particularly in its messaging and its health communication. But one thing... I know for sure, and you know for sure, is that CDC is staffed by really good scientists that want to do the best for the American public. And to see the kinds of deep distrust is not an adequate word for it, because there are some people that have a visceral hate for the agency and for science itself, thinking of them as elites and arrogant and wrong. So I think we do need a bottom-up and top-down review of CDC. First of all, I would go f further than Dr. Walensky, who is doing a much, you know, kind of an internal quick review of CDC, you know, with an external consultant, but doing it in a month. I think we need a, you know, high-level commission that looks at CDC and the full federal response to COVID-19 learn the lessons, ask the, the proper questions, you know, what systems does CDC need? What kind of scientists does it need? What kind of data does it need? How much funding does that take? And what powers are legitimate? And then Congress needs to act from the top down. That's what a well-functioning democracy would do in the aftermath of the pandemic. 
I can't say that many of us are optimistic that we will see that kind of a careful, reasoned, nonpartisan evaluation of the kind that we've been describing. You know, in the PREVENT Act that Senators Murray and Burr have put forward, there's a call for having the head of CDC confirmed by the Senate, having a prestigious advisory board, having a periodic performance review. It doesn't address the data problems, the overly rigid earmarking. There's over 200 accounts at CDC. It doesn't address the deep cultural issues of being relatively academic and slow in the communications and the stumbles in the communications. But I still, I I thought that at least you had a bipartisan consensus around trying to strengthen CDC. When the PREVENT Act asked for, you know, Senate confirmation of CDC head, I I hesitated. Ordinarily, that would be signaling a good thing because you would, it would tell us that, you know, this was a very high level appointment, that it would get serious Senate consideration and therefore Senate support for the nominee. But we've, we've seen anything but that with Senate confirmations. And need I just go back to uh, now Justice Jackson. So Senate confirmations have become so politically toxic, they've lost their ability to do what our framers, I hope, intended, which is to raise this to a, you know, in a democracy. So I'm, I'm worried about these, you know, further politicizing CDC. Larry, speaking of toxic, you know, this legal decision came as a shock. And in fact, people were informed about it by airplane pilots while they were mid-flight and people ripping masks off and things like that. But this seemed like, you know, it could have been predictable that something like this was coming. What do you think comes next in the COVID culture wars? Can we think ahead about that? Well, you know, we almost, you know, don't need to think ahead. We only need to look back because can you honestly think of one intervention during COVID that hasn't been part of a culture war? I can't. Masks, vaccines, lockdowns, schools, businesses, you you name it. And it's very hard for me to see that there's anything that, you know, that wouldn't cause political divisiveness over COVID-19. It's, you know, I, I just don't, you know, even, even the nation's most treasured jewels, like somebody like a Tony Fauci, who's, you know, you know, advised, what is it, Steve, seven or eight presidents has, you know, been there from, you know, AIDS to TB to Ebola, in all of those areas, even he is the subject of, you know, death threats and, you know, and agree with him or not. I mean, he's an old friend of ours, very, I know him to be such a sincere, smart public servant. Not that he's always right, of course not. But I think it just illustrates that You know, if you really ask me what's going on here is that, you know, it's two things. Americans don't want to be told what to do or even advised what to do. 
And and the second point is is that, you know, they they see it as people looking down at them. You know, the elites looking down. And the truth is, you know, northeastern and you know the coastal elites do often look down, and that's a, not a good thing. But gosh, how did we get to the point where, you know, a simple vaccine or a respirator on your face would be so culturally, politically, socially divisive as as they are? And how do we overcome that for the future? Especially when, you know, it was reported that a majority of Americans have been infected with coronavirus. I think it's over 60% and growing. Yeah, there isn't a person in the nation who hasn't been infected themselves or a family member or a close friend. So that should bring us all together. You know, we've always thought that in the face of a common enemy and what could be more of a common enemy than a germ that doesn't yeah. belong Larry, to any of us. The, um, we come together, but we haven't. The question that Andrew posed, in this case, there were three plaintiffs, right? Two were women who, who were suffering anxiety at the thought of traveling with a mask, and that was their, their charge. And then there was a Wyoming public Activist, health yeah. freedom organization that was, and these two women were members of that group, but that group was deliberately trying to seed challenges, file suits and seed challenges against mandates and against other things they don't like about the government in its response to the pandemic. So there's an infrastructure out there that has raised money and built up enough expertise to frame the issues, figure out where to file. You know, they chose that particular district very carefully, right? And and it worked and it and it caught. So in some ways, you know, if we understand better the the logic and the strategy of these organizations, we'll be able to say, look, we can expect the mandates or whenever there are mandates, and mandates have been stripped away, so there's fewer and fewer targets out there now, right? But there are still going to be some targets. And I guess my question is, what would you predict? Because mandates are going away. What is it that these groups are going to find as the as the pivot point, you know, if if they had waited beyond May 3rd, the target would have gone away. Which shows that they're really in it for the, you know, to make the point and not to, you know, they could have just waited and it would have gone. Well, they hit a home run from their perspective, right? Yeah. So I want to emphasize first what you said, Steve, because there there is a large infrastructure that that works, you know, and it's not just COVID on on uh, firearms control, abortion, uh, reproductive rights, that is a very organized, well-funded infrastructure to target the courts, but also the legislature, state legislatures in particular, with model state laws that they that they are uh, pushing in in various areas. The conservative activists are are just better at it than the liberals, but the liberals, you know. They do the same thing when ACLU brings a case. It forum shops. It'll more likely to go to San Francisco than Florida. And so we have to do some deep thinking about what the judiciary should do. For a start, I'm not suggesting this, but I think it's got to be considered, is should we allow 
one federal district court judge from the left or the right to issue a nationwide injunction. That will help deter forum shopping, you know, getting the right judge. And it will not give such awesome power to a single federal judge. That's one thing I, I would say. You know, when this target goes away, you know, when, when all mandates go away, you know, maybe the next thing is just the very idea of CDC making recommendations. It's hard to know what the next thing will, will be, but it's clearly in, you know, people's ideological and political interests to sow division over COVID-19. And I think that will continue to happen. I think the next things might very well be attacks on state laws, particularly childhood immunization, and particularly the Supreme Court's agenda of preferencing religious freedom over other values, including public health. Whereas a childhood vaccination law, which has no religious exemption or a business that does, is neutral. What the Supreme Court has said as long as it's not targeted at religion, everybody has to abide by it. It's all right. I think we might see that significantly eroding, including with a current case before the Supreme Court. Larry, you know, this whole discussion is kind of a bummer. So we always want to ask, you know, what gives you the most hope and optimism going forward, especially given that cases are on the rise again? What gives me the most optimism is the fact that I do think that there is a level of immunity, population-based immunity and disease-induced immunity or vaccine-induced immunity that we've seen the end of our darkest days. Can I be certain of this? No. But I do think that we're heading toward um, a new era. And in that new era, we're going to have to treat COVID, you know, with kind of surveillance and vaccinations and monitoring, you know, very much like our influenza surveillance system and uh, with vaccinations. So I think, you know, I'm optimistic about where the nation's headed from a public health point of view. My worry is, is that there will be future health crises and will we have, a, you know, public health agencies that are well-funded where people want to go to work in the morning, feel that they're doing good, and have the powers they need to protect us. That's the next battleground. Thanks so much, Larry. It's been great to spend time together with you this afternoon. Me too, and thank you both, both dear old friends. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts. From Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 